Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to another podcast or vlogcast. And another week of rich health information that we'll be nattering on about. So without further ado, let's start. You suffer a heart attack. God forbid. What do you do? Well, obviously the first thing you do is call an ambulance. It's where the doctors are really good. Life-threatening uh, stuff they're superb. What's the second thing you do? Well, according to new research that's just come out, you pop one or two vitamin E supplements. Yes, vitamin E. It's because the vitamin can protect the heart during an attack and immediately afterwards, so the organ is not damaged. Um, they're suggesting that after a heart attack, take the vitamin, and it can be just standard issue vitamin, as soon as possible uh, after the attack, either in your home, in the ambulance, or on the way to hospital, or in the emergency room itself, because I'm sure the doctors themselves won't be offering it to you. But they found the vitamins as, as antioxidant and anti-inflammatory qualities that protect the heart tissue that could be damaged by a heart attack. And it's very important it's done as soon as possible after the attack. Um, they're still, still doing research into this, but they say already that, look, there's no harm. Start taking this vitamin anyway, but keep some, keep some in the kitchen or wherever in case you have an attack. They, they reckon it's as powerful as any drug in protecting the heart. And it's in a separate study, the Timing is absolutely of the essence. Um, they say the optimum time to treat a heart attack is up to two hours after the attack. And after that, heart tissue can be permanently damaged after about six hours. So very important to have the vitamin as soon as possible. And in, in this separate study, it's quite interesting because we think of a heart attack as something very sudden and immediate thing. They say it isn't always the case that very often a heart attack can be something that's gradual, that actually happens over several hours rather than several moments. And uh, it can be just as lethal either way. And um, they say you have up to two hours to get emergency treatment, but you have to understand what a heart attack is and what's happening to you. And so the sort of standard uh, symptoms of the heart attack, especially the gradual one, is sudden breathlessness, discomfort, tiredness and pains, which are usually in the chest and arms. And the problem is that it can often happen without any obvious cause. So most acute heart attacks, which happen in the moment, are after, after physical exertion. But these ones, which are very the gradual heart attacks, don't have any apparent cause, but as I say, can be equally as lethal. They, they, the researchers from University of Illinois looked at this and they found that um, of the 474 heart attack or myocardial infarctions, as our doctors like to call them, um, of those, um, 20, 261 or 54% were acute and followed physical exertion, but 207, so you know, a good 40% of them, actually happened as gradual heart attacks when there was no obvious cause. But the real take-home here, apart from realising that a heart attack doesn't have to be sudden, is take vitamin E, because it could well save your life. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to believe that something as simple as a vitamin can be life-saving. And indeed, you know, the medical profession mm. doesn't really give credence to mm. the kinds of supplements that can protect the heart, but many are very, very protective. Mm. You know, vitamin E is number one. Another big one to think about, Brian, is magnesium. Magnesium is good for everything. It's a super, it's a super mineral, you know, and so um, um, low in most people. We don't get it in our daily diet because um, the soils are now de so depleted mm. that we miss a lot of essential uh, minerals. But magnesium is one of the big ones there. But those antioxidants, but particularly vitamin E, can be extraordinary. Now, the other thing is don't believe the studies about vitamin E. There have been studies in the past saying actually um, it contributes to death. They did a study of smokers mm. taking vitamin E, and it was a very <clears throat> manipulated study with not enough vitamin E. So uh, this new research is really welcome, Brian, because mm. it puts it out there once again as a super supplement. Yeah, and, and they, they do say, look, it works at standard standard issue levels. It's a standard dose. And they say, as far as they're concerned, the research that they've done shows absolutely no side effects at all. And it's a lifesaver. I mean, just on that point of heart health, I suppose, rather than disease, I mean, is vitamin E amongst those you should take to protect against heart disease? Oh, I think so. I think you have to look at and, and try to get it in your diet, too. Mm. Um, it's in eggs, it's in certain, certain things like nuts. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> ACE, you know, mm -hmm. and many others, um, CoQ10, these are all potent, potent uh, antioxidants that should be part of your daily supplement program. Mm. Mm. But phenomenal, I think, that a simple vitamin actually protects the heart from damage after a heart attack. And, um, you know, who would have thought that it would have that level of potency? I think, you know, people don't, and certainly medicine doesn't recognize the huge potency of mm. some of these supplements. Mm. I mean, CoQ10 um, is depleted with all of the people taking cholesterol drugs for their, mm. you know, to protect their heart. Mm. They're actually doing it damage because CoQ10, coenzyme Q10, is a real lifesaver mm. once again for the heart. So I think the bottom line too, Brian, is that you know, we think of heart disease and heart attacks as something that needs real heroic measures. And of course, if you're having a heart attack, we're not suggesting you don't dial your, for the ambulance right away and dial emergency and get yourself to a hospital right away. That's where doctors, as you say, are brilliant. But um, what they fail to recognize is a lot of the things that lead up to a heart attack can be prevented by simple dietary and supplement measures. Mm. Um, and instead of taking drugs, which oftentimes exacerbate problems like cholesterol drugs, mm. which will cause problems in the brain, which cause um, problems to the heart too, um, beta blockers and all of those blood pressure drugs that can cause all kinds of side effects, supplements like this can prevent the whole thing mm, from happening. That's right. I mean, I did a, a review of a study recently which showed that 40% of all deaths around the world are directly related to diet and nutrition. So, you know, so that would be an enormous preventative if people actually 
ate well and took supplements. But good to know that the vitamin E should be in your first aid kit for any sudden emergency. Absolutely. Thanks, Lynn. We've just been discussing how a simple supplement, vitamin E, can help protect the heart immediately after a heart attack and reduce any damage and is just as powerful as any drug, as researchers said. Well, there's another supplement out there that seems to be doing wonders for schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is one of those big, difficult mental problems, as they describe it. Um, But... You know, they really there isn't really a good treatment out there or that's conventional that seems to be working at all well. But there is a, an alternative, a supplement that does. It's uh, known as the brain supplement. It's sarcosine, and um, the researchers have done some 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 work on this and reckon it's a logical treatment because it helps restore brain functioning after a schizophrenic attack. And um, the the researchers at Queen Mary University of London are are confident that sarcosine could become part of standard treatment within just a couple of years. Um, What it does, it seems to rebuild uh, receptors for glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter that helps the brain function healthily. And so without glutamate, people suffer psychosis, which is a common symptom of schizophrenia. And um, the researchers stepped back from saying, well, that's all you need. Don't take the conventional uh, therapies as well. But they do say it should certainly at least supplement the conventional treatments for schizophrenia. Um, And they do warn that sarcosine doesn't mix well with antidepressants. So, And the, the cocktail of the two can trigger hypomania which is feelings of euphoria. So despite that, you know, it, on its own, it seems to be doing the job pretty well. Um, and they say it's defensible and evidence-based. So the day is not far off when yet another simple supplement actually has big, big benefits, way beyond anything that people think it could. In the meantime, if you don't take sarcosine as a supplement, it is in egg yolks, turkey, and legumes. But supplement is what the researchers studied, and they said it's extremely effective. Well, it's probably also a higher level than you get in ordinary foods, and you may need that as a schizophrenic. Um, One of the interesting things about so-called mental issues that that orthomolecular scientists and doctors see is that Sometimes people who have so-called mental illnesses have um, a slightly different need for certain minerals or vitamins. Um, For instance, we knew someone who um, had so-called schizophrenia, but he was just an overproducer of copper. Mm. So he needed, it was like somebody with a different recipe for a cake, and you have to follow the recipe. So by giving him, for instance, more zinc, that just calm down his episodes. And so as the psychiatrist, American psychiatrist Pam Scrivenik says, she's going to be featured in our Get Well show in February 2020 in Olympia in London. She's talked a lot about the idea that people have different biochemical needs. And when you test them and see what 
deficiencies they have in certain nutrients or what their dietary requirements are, and you uh, and you satisfy them, those so-called mental illnesses go away. So this is a perfect example of it because this sarcosine, um, they reckon, can completely rebuild glutamate, which is a ne neurotransmitter in the brain. Mm. And that's a really important piece of it. The other welcome thing about this, Brian, is, let's face it, antipsychotics, you know, come with a laundry list of terrible side effects, the old, both the old ones and the new ones. And that's true, really, for most drugs for so-called mental illness, mm -hmm. you know, ever, including anti-anxiety drugs like Prozac. Um, so... Finding an alternative, a simple alternative like that, combining it with individualized approach is really welcome. Mm. And, it's, you know, schizophrenia is seen as one of the big, difficult mental disorders, isn't it? And I know there was a, a similar study uh, a little while ago about bipolar, which is, I suppose, another one of the big, difficult ones. And again, it was a nutritional lack that seemed to be the heart of the problem. So a lot of what Pam has said, and I know you've interviewed her, um, seems to bear out that what these studies are also discovering, that it's not really in the brain at all. Absolutely. And so I think it's a really, really interesting thing to for people to explore and try. I mean, I think you know, the more we look at this, these things, even with the difficult things, there really are solutions out there which are non-drug-based and are working as well, if not better, and without all the terrible side effects that go with it. I really have to congratulate the team at Queen Mary University of London mm. for being this brave to do this mm. kind of study and to say, as they concluded, um, that uh, psychiatrists should consider sarcosine and say they say it's defensible mm. and it's evidence-based. Right. So that's fabulous. Very good. Thanks, Lynn. How long should we breastfeed our young? Well, it's... Uh, tricky subject isn't it and i don't think mothers agree amongst themselves and the world health organization reckons at the most 18 months before you start introducing solids and actually probably sooner than that um but these are often sort of social mores rather than being hard you know hard facts based on science and Interesting um, angle on this was a discovery by anthropologists quite recently who discovered fossilized teeth from early humans a million years old, and so even older than us, Lynn. <laughs> and um, they found that, in fact, the, these our early ancestors were feeding their young for twice the amount of time that the World Health Organization says is appropriate. So they were breastfeeding their young for, two, for three to four years. And I know there are organizations around to this day who actually do say to mothers, if you want to breastfeed that long, that's fine. And you don't have to put up with the social pressures and the haughty looks because... Maybe your baby does need it. And it seems that the anthropologists at the Bristol University might agree um, because the, these early humans, as they were, were doing just that. So maybe we should be doing the same. 
Well, I think we definitely need to change our culture around it, Brian. Mm. I mean, right now there is an attitude because so many women are in the workplace. Mm. There is an attitude not of discouraging breastfeeding, but kind of saying it's okay if you don't. Mm. Don't feel like a failure. Instead of encouraging and helping uh, women learn how to do it because it's it's a learned skill. Sure. You know, it takes a little bit of a knack on mm. both mother and baby. Mm. But that is, you know, okay. If you don't if you don't know how to do it in the first week or so, it's okay. It's mm. fine. Bottles just as good. Mm. Well, you know, this is not to disparage the people out there who couldn't breastfeed, no. but. Um, bottle isn't as good. You know, there's no question about it. Even medicine says that for so many different reasons, babies have been programmed to breastfeed for a long time. And we all know that breastfeeding is considered weird in public. I mean, I remember when, you know, our oldest daughter was young and I was breastfeeding her very discreetly in a cafe. I had a waitress come over to me and say, you can't do that here. It's unhygienic. And I just kind of giggled thinking well, you mean, about you, you can't eat in a cafe. Yeah, yeah, mm. no, no, you can't. Yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah. but you, you know, and I, I was amazed by that, and amazed by a number of you know people, people's attitudes in general, as though it's something weird and terrible and should be hidden away. Um, and I, I think that's the problem with the culture. Mm. It also makes it really hard for mothers because mm. they they're due back at work so quickly. Um, they have to go to heroic lengths to pump and do all of that other stuff. But all you have to do is look at a group of five-year-olds in nursery school or, um, or you know, kindergarten mm. and see that almost all of them are sucking their thumb. Mm. Now, there's a good reason for that. There is a sucking instinct that goes on for a long time. Mm. So we need to recognize that it's, mm. you know, good for mother and baby mm. and set up special units, in my view. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? There are a lot of women who don't want to breastfeed for very long, but equally they're not encouraged to do so, are they? And the information they get is about getting onto solids as quickly as possible or supplement that with orange juice. Hmm. Do you remember that? You know, we used yeah. to get be told, well, you should have orange juice with your breast milk, as if that wasn't sufficient for the baby. So there are all sorts of things going along, and there's now, in addition to that, the social media pressures as well. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's no right answer. Is there? it's, it's whatever the mother feels comfortable doing. But if she were encouraged to consider longer breastfeeding, well... Just look back a million years, she'd be immediately at home. Yeah. So there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, so, and whether, also there is the, mm. the, is the, the whole thing that um, women aren't told. They think, oh, if I breastfeed for a long time, mm. it's going to be solid, the same amount that it mm. is when the baby is tiny. Mm. You know, with the people I know who have breastfed for a long time, it's, you know, once a day or something mm. like that. Um, with a baby is you know, slowly moved on to solids mm. and, and all of that. Mm. So um, I think that there's such a need for information about this mm. and for the doctors to be educated too, because they're mm. the ones dispensing the device, the advice. And in many, many cases, mm. you know, they don't know themselves. Yeah. And of course, if our ancestors didn't get it right, we wouldn't be here today. And we are. So there Absolutely. you go. Absolutely. Okay. 
Parkinson's disease is a nasty degenerative disease which slowly affects the brain, destroys the brain cells. And um, as a result of that, people have said it's a disease of the brain. But actually, research that's just come out says, no, it's not a disease of the brain. It's a disease of the gut. Yet again, another disease that actually begins in the gut. The actual theory was mooted years ago, about 16 years ago, but was never finally proven. Well, now it has been by the Aarhus University in Denmark, who've actually tested on laboratory rats and have actually seen the disease migrate from the gut straight to the brain via the heart, which is very interesting. And um, because they say, oh, a Parkinson's sufferer has a damaged nervous system to begin with. But if it's actually a build-up of these proteins in the gut, which actually started to happen 20 years prior the disease manifesting, this would suggest that the nervous system damage was actually part of that initial process and wasn't a separate issue at all. And, um, and the fact that it happens via the heart is also an important factor because a Parkinson's sufferer can also have an affected heart. And yet they find that the process goes from gut to heart to brain. So really what we're seeing is nervous system um, uh, problems early on, very early on, 20 years prior to the disease. Then the next stage is uh, a damaged heart and then finally gets to the brain. But it's all part of the same process, all but migrating directly from the gut. So yet another example then of the gut playing a primary role in these chronic conditions. It's one, I mean, we are almost covering this now once a week, aren't we? There's something starting in the gut. Well, Parkinson's is the latest. I'm really fascinated by this because um, Parkinson's is one of those really interesting diseases that also has um, a lot to do with, you know, dopamine. Hmm. And... Um, uh, our colleague and friend, uh, John Gray of Mars and Venus fame, um, found that he was developing Parkinson's after uh, all of the fame he had with that the publication of that book. Mm. His wife... Men are from Mars, women from Venus. Absolutely. Mm. And he, uh, his wife noticed that he was shaking. Mm. And he found that all kinds of connections between Parkinson's and... ADHD, mm. and other things like that where you're just overexcited mm. and it causes all kinds of disruptions in the brain. But it's also an interesting thing about um, the gut issue because he realized that he had so much, that he had ADHD as a kid and he had so much sugar and white bread and milk and things like that, that his gut was right. undoubtedly affected too. Right. Yeah. So all of these things conspired to create uh, Parkinson's. Mm. But it really is fascinating to you know, as they as they say, death <laughs> begins in the colon, mm. and we're finding out more and more that, in a sense, the gut isn't the second brain; it's the first brain. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that the kinder we are to our gut, the 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 reduction we'll see in, in chronic diseases like this. I think there's a direct correlation. And so many um, of these uh, 
chronic diseases of which there seem to be epidemics are essentially a factor of modern nutrition mm-hmm. and, and the fact we're not eating proper foods, as it were, as we once were. And infections in the gut. You know, all that bacteria, those yeasts, mm. uh, the parasites that are now becoming mm. ubiquitous. Yeah. You know, we need to just, that's the first place to look yeah. when you have any kind of illness. Yeah. And interestingly, we're, you know, talking well, more and more about neurological illnesses and so-called mental illness. Yeah. Look there first. When I, I did a research into bread making. <laughs> and um, really, this started about 1880 with the, with the move from... Uh, agrarian life to city dwelling where there was suddenly a need to uh, produce food at a far faster rate and they started to cut corners in the way they processed bread so that goes back to 1880 and the the move away from agrarian life where there was better food so the population increased and it meant food being served quickly to people and of course that then accelerated dramatically in the 20s and 30s with the introduction of mass production. You know, and you can almost draw a line between that point and the rise of all these chronic conditions, which were were more of a rarity in, if you draw a line, you know, going back 1850 and, and earlier, then forward, you'll see an enormous difference in these chronic conditions being directly related to food or its the lack thereof, of proper food thereof, and gut problems. And, and um, you know, even back then, I'm sure gut was you know, a key player in all of this. And it's just that then, it's only now we're making that connection. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, when you have uh, bread and grains mm. so manipulated, mm. uh, not only can the body not process it, but what it ends up doing is being overloaded with sugars. Mm. You know, as mm. with modern bread making, it's mm. a lot a lot about sugar. John mm. Green used to say that when he was a kid, he used to stick a big wad of white bread in his cheek yeah. because it was a bit like so having sweet. a piece of candy. Right. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, you know, what are some of the symptoms of growing old? The inevitable aging process seems to take its toll and there are a few uh, conditions that uh, gerontologists who are people who study aging agree upon some of those of course unsteadiness dizziness memory loss you know general ability to uh, to to work the brain properly all these things and incontinence these are the main pillars of, of aging, apparently, but I did a study about this years ago and found that every single one of those symptoms of so-called aging also happened to be side effects of most of the drugs that older people take, from you know antihypertensives to statins and NSAIDs and you name it. And um, it's bad enough when you're just taking one drug, but of course, As you get older, you don't. And uh, a new study has discovered that, in fact, on average, by the time someone has reached the age of 65, they're taking between five and eight drugs. So it's called polypharmacy. So you're taking a, a multitude of different powerful chemicals which are actually interacting with each other and no one's studied that at all i mean you become a chemistry set and um what happens when these things merge and 
fuse together? We do not know the answer. We know what they do individually, and that's bad enough and seems to produce many of the symptoms of of aging. But when you take five or more, then we, we you're into uncharted territory because no one's actually tracked the interaction of those drugs and what they do to people. Um, we do know that um, 53% uh, of these taking up to eight drugs a day will suffer a serious side effect. We know that much. And um, they also say that... Um, um, let's see now. The amount is is the 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 actual amount of drugs you're taking, of course, goes up as you get older. So by the time you are in your eighties, it it can be in in double figures. I mean, I remember seeing a study about that, and they reckoned that by the time someone reached the age of eighty, they could be taking even up to thirty different prescription drugs. I mean, the cocktail of that lot is just amazing. I mean, the as it is, the side effects from these drugs include confusion, dizziness, and delirium. But you know, it's it it's it's the drugs, not old age. Absolutely, and one of the things that's fundamentally wrong is the idea that the body has systems mm. that operate in a strictly linear linear fashion. Mm. You know, we we take a drug, and it should take. Um, tab mm. A and mm. slot into slot B. Mm. But that's not the way the body works. Mm. As Dr. Bruce Lipton talked about in his various books, uh, particularly The Biology of Belief, um, the body has holistic systems that not only will slot A affect mm. or tab A affect slot B, mm. it'll affect C, slot mm. C, D, yeah. E, F, G. Yeah. And so the body sort of works in this interesting web. And when you start taking different drugs like this, they will affect different slots all mm. over the body and then affect each other yeah. to completely unknown effect. Yeah. So that when people are diagnosed as having certain declines, you know, the first place you should look is what are the side effects of those drugs? Mm. Because chances are even your doctor doesn't know. No, they don't know. And of course, you know, and it becomes a vicious circle, as we've spoken about before, that um, if someone reports a side effect and the doctor doesn't see it in his reference sheets, says, well, it can't be the drug. But it's just because it's not been reported, but it was the drug. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it seems to be that the more drugs you, you take, the more likely you are to end up in hospital. So on which slightly... Bitter note, I suppose. Um, we bid you adieu and stay well. And um, yeah, well, I won't say any more. But I mean, I'm Brian Hubbard. Thanks for watching or listening. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And don't worry, you can look up the side effects of these drugs. They're available online now. So before you get prescribed a drug and take it, have a look at it. Yeah. Good Do advice. the homework yourself. Good advice, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks indeed. Bye.